Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. Welcome to Season 5. I know we are getting started late in the season. My apologies for that. There have been a lot of things going on, just expanding the show, just things behind the scenes, which all makes it sound very dramatic, but it's all good things. I'm really, really excited to share what we have coming up on the show. So stay tuned for all of that that is coming up. Over the next coming weeks, we're going to catch up with episodes. So trying to put out a weekly podcast if we can. Um, so that's what we're going to try to do. I am in Berlin right now. It is the first chilly day. It's October right now. And it has been like in the high 20 Celsius, so like 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Very unusual weather, um, but also very nice weather too. So got to say I've been enjoying it. And there is a ton of stuff going on. We are in the middle of the tech season. So I want to catch you up in today's episode on what I've been up to over the summer, some of my travels. If you've been keeping up on YouTube, you have an idea of some of the places I've been to. Then I want to talk a little bit about something that's going on in Paris, which is like the traveler nightmare. And then third thing is I want to talk a little bit about iPhone, talk about some of the tech coming up because I have a lot of shipments coming to me. A lot of reviews will be coming out between now and the end of the year. It is just go, go, go. Very exciting time. Always the busiest time of the year for Fox Nomad stuff for basically for on all fronts for me between September and December. And it has been starting out to be busier than it's been just, I mean, it is definitely the high season and I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. I'm thriving, thriving on it. So I'm glad to be here with you again. This is just a catch up episode. I want to talk a little bit about things that have been going on. And then uh, we have some great guests coming up from all over the world, from different places. Uh, so make sure that you are subscribed. If you're listening and you're not already subscribed, make sure you do that. And if you haven't already left a five-star review, wherever you listen to your podcast, that is a huge help. So what have I been up to? Where have I been? First of all, I spent some time traveling around Central and South America knocking off a couple of countries on the list. I'm trying to go to every country in the world, as many of you know, and I am not in a rush, but I've been more conscious the last couple of years to really get those countries off the list. So the next 18 months, I'm going to put a big dent uh, into that list. I've, I've gotten over 100, but there are 197 if we're going by the UN list. So that is the number that I'm going to try to meet, so uh, trying to get those countries off the list. And four new countries I got to do over the summer. One is Guyana. That's the first place, the first new country that I visited over the summer. Guyana, which a lot of people confuse with some place in Africa uh, for some reason, but Guyana is in the northern part of South America. It is a relatively small country in terms of population. Most of the country, I think something like 70 to 90% of it is rainforest, is Amazon rainforest. There are a couple of cities in the north. It doesn't have a very good security reputation. And for a lot of people around the world, it's not a big tourist destination. Now, knowing all of that off the top of my head, you know, when I go to a place, typically what I do, how I, you know, kind of plan my travels is 
I sort of have the first couple of videos planned out. So I have a couple of specific things that I want to do through online research and all of that. And then a couple of like overarching videos that are like Guyana talking about safety. So I made a video about the safety there because uh, it's, it's a big, it's a big issue. And I talked a little bit about accommodation because finding accommodation there was, well, interesting to say the least. So that's kind of how I planned out. But then once I get there, it's really just, a, uh, you know, on the ground, boots on the ground planning uh, with the goal of being trying to shoot one to two videos a day, every day that I'm in a place. Six days a week, I usually take one day of the week off to just recuperate. And that's kind of how things go. So knowing all of this, you know, I had a general plan in, in Georgetown and the rest of Guyana. There isn't a ton of things to do in the cities there. So it was fairly easy to plan. It was a little bit more difficult to get off the beaten path stuff. And then there was uh, something in the rainforest, Kaitur Falls, which are the hall the tallest waterfall in maybe in the world or in South America. Uh, just the amount of water that goes over the falls is one of the top in the world. So I really wanted to go there and that's in the rainforest. It's a, a little bit of a flight south of Georgetown, a small uh, like 15 seater kind of plane. And so I get to Guyana thinking, all right, it's probably going to be nobody at the airport. The flights arrive at like midnight. And then I arrive. So basically what I, what I was telling you about the research is I do some specific research, but I try to leave a lot of it open. So I don't want to know everything about a place before I go. I want to kind of discover things on my own, um, which can work out. What, what I'm going to say to you, if you know Guyana already is going to sound dumb, but I like to find out why I'm there. So I get to the airport and it is packed. It is completely packed. And what's crazy is in the line across from me is Drew Binsky. I don't know if you uh, follow his YouTube channel, but uh, there's Drew Binsky over there. And I was like, what is going on? I wait an hour and a half. There's a massive line. There are all these guys flying in from the US who have like camouflage gear. Like they look like they're going to like hunt. That, so I was thinking, oh, maybe it's a big hunting destination. I, I, I couldn't really tell. It turns out that Guyana, like five years ago, five, six years ago, oil was discovered there. And, and not just a little bit of oil. Like it could be one of the world's top producing oil countries very, very soon. It might be top five. It, it may have massive amounts of oil. So... This is causing a massive oil boom in the country, which is obviously bringing a lot of people, especially from the United States, over investors, oil companies, all of these kind of things. And so you see a lot of people who are going to Guyana for business, for oil. And so it means that the airport is very crowded. It means that this country, which doesn't really have a tourist infrastructure, which has a terrible security reputation, is just getting this massive interest and a large influx of money is going to be coming in. And so you you just show up and you're like, this is so weird. So I get there and the owner of this first hotel I stayed in, which is a very small boutique hotel, he actually picked me up in the airport. It was like 2 a.m. And he was like, man, the line must have been really long. And I was like, yeah, I waited for almost two hours in the line. It just really really slow. Like 
there are a few hundred people there and like three passport control guys there. So it took a long time. You get into the country and a lot of places where you, when you go there, it's kind of like they tell you, you know, places that have a bad security reputation, you go and you talk to people and they're like, oh, it's not that bad. You know, you just have to be careful doing this and doing that. I was really surprised when the topic came up with the owner of the hotel, with the driver who was, you know, as he was driving me to the hotel, it was, he was like, oh yeah, it's, it's pretty dangerous here. He said, you've got to be really careful. He's like, around the hotel, I know everybody. So even if you got mugged, he told me, I would be able to get your stuff back because we all kind of know everybody and we probably know who things outside of that neighborhood, you know, it would be a lot more difficult. So you just have to be very, very careful. I ended up using a guide. Uh, to kind of help me navigate. And that's a whole other story because finding a guide is very difficult. Trying to arrange anything outside of Guyana is almost impossible. There's a lot of WhatsApp messages that go, 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 and then they just kind of ghost you. So you feel like you've got things set up and then you don't. And then the guide that you you get there, the, the guides aren't, they're not all great. Let me put it that way. Uh, the, you know, it's just, it, it's just like there's no infrastructure. They don't really have experience guiding people. It's, it's, it's just sort of a weird experience all around. So a couple of things on Guyana, you don't really go out at night. And if you do, you got to take a car, you, you know, you got to make sure you have a car range there and back. You don't walk around at night during the day. It's super hot. So you really aren't going to be doing a lot of walking outside, but if you do, you don't wear jewelry, you don't wear your watch, you know, you keep your electronics out of sight. I had a guide with me for a lot of my time in Guyana, so I was able to, and, and this is for the big cities and in, in Amazon, it's, it's different. It's, it, Amazon is pretty, pretty chill and, you know, there's not a lot going on there. Um, but in the big cities, you know, he was like, you know, you can have your camera out and, and whatever, just, you know, I'll tell you when you should put it away and so on. And so that's what I was doing. Um, for the most part, that was okay. Um, we went to some of the markets that have a bad reputation, kept my camera out for most of the time. It was just sort of, you know, guide watching over me, telling me, you know, careful and so on. And there is one place though, where one place where I filmed, where he did say, take your small camera out, take the small, you know, the mini camera out, which is what I did. And that's when I was filming at this local food place, which had amazing food. Like it didn't look like it should. It's just, you go up to like a, it's called Betancourt and it, it's, there are like two lines and you just kind of go up to this like kiosk, you put your order in one side of the kiosk and you go to the other side of the kiosk and they give you food. Um, really, really, really good food. You would not expect it. The neighborhood to me seemed good. Like it looks, looked nice. It was bustling. It was businessy, but apparently it's not the best neighborhood. So, um, the guide was like, yeah, you, you know, probably shouldn't have your camera out here, which honestly. I think at that point, it probably would have been fine, you know, whether I'm taking out the smaller, less conspicuous, small camera or not. I'm pretty obvious when I'm filming myself while I eat a meal outside, you know, um, I don't know. So that was kind of that it was, it was, it was just sort of a weird situation. I did end up to get to Kaitour Falls, which again, had to be arranged while I was there. It was a last minute thing. Trying to arrange that stuff outside of the country is really difficult. And I think that will hopefully improve as more tourists start going, but really they don't have a lot of tourists. Most of the tourists who go are from New York who are of Guyanese descent or who are Guyanan who went to New York. That seemed to be 
90% of the people that I ran into who are visiting were kind of in that situation. So, so yeah, so went to Kaitor Falls, went to the Amazon, which was absolutely amazing. It was just an, a fantastic day. You just get to go out in nature, hike through the Amazon, see the waterfalls. The guide is very good. You know, they tell you about the history and about the indigenous people and about the, the legends of the falls. The flight there is, uh, if you're scared of planes, if you don't like flying, it's probably not for you, honestly, because it's a very small plane. It's pretty rickety, but the views from the plane just going over the falls is absolutely incredible. I'm it, Definitely the highlight of Guyana for me. I think if I had just stayed in the cities, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it that much. Like I'll say the people are very friendly in Guyana. The food is very good. I would say though that the restrictions when it comes to security, it just, for me personally, when you're in a place like that, you just kind of, it takes away something because you're constantly thinking. There's constantly this second thought in your mind that doesn't allow you to enjoy a place completely. And in my case, you know, when I'm going to film, it's just sort of an added layer of stuff I have to think about. So I would say if you're going to Guyana, which probably is not the top of your list, but if you do end up going there for work or whatever, make sure you get to Kaitor Falls. It is a fantastic experience. They are building lodges there now so tourists can stay and camp and so on. I think slowly it's going to just be... I, I, I could imagine in 10 years, there's going to be a bunch of like small hotels and stuff built up there and you won't get quite the same experience. So yeah, so I think right now is kind of a nice time to go see if you just go to Kaitor Falls. So that's Guyana. Sorry, I kind of rambled on about Guyana. It's just such a weird, absolutely weird place. Like people are just, when you go to a place like that where there's no tourism infrastructure and you're just making contacts on the ground, like a guy knows a guy or this girl knows this guy who's going to be your tour guide, who's maybe official, maybe not. Like, it's so weird. It's really sort of like intermediate to advanced level traveling. It's not an easy place to go and just, you know, where you have everything figured out ahead of time and all that. So the second place I went to on this trip is Suriname, which is right next door, literally right next to Guyana. It's kind of same situation. It's this long country, you know, long but sort of smallish, relatively speaking, when you compare it to South American countries, most of it is rainforest. It is absolutely one of the best places in the world to eat. Paramaribo, the capital city, is one of the best places in the world to eat. It is really, really, really a hidden gem. I hate that term. It's so cliche, but hidden gem really fits for Paramaribo. It is such an amazing... I mean, you can get... First of all, Suriname... It, you know, the, here's the TLDR, the too long, didn't read, a very short version of its history. So it was colonized by the Dutch, then the British, then it went back to the Dutch and a few other exchanges there as well. And they brought slaves from India, Pakistan, Indonesia, China, Japan. Like the amount of people that were brought there over the last couple hundred years is amazing. Like astounding how many people were brought there. Um, it was, you know, made as a big uh, port and a, a sort of trading area, but that kind of diminished over the years. And so Suriname has this very kind of uh, difficult past of slavery and colonialism. But the remnants of that now, since it's, you know, gotten its independence within the last 50 years, 
is you get a lot of these different ethnic groups who have brought their cuisine with them and who have mixed it with a lot of the sort of indigenous food and ingredients that are there. You can get, I've had the best Korean food I think I've ever had, Paramaribo. Some of the best Indonesian food I've had outside of Indonesia, Paramaribo. Some of the best Indian food I've ever had, Paramaribo. Some of the best, you know, you can find Creole food there. It is absolutely flavorful. The Chinese food is some of the best Chinese food I've had there. Amazing. One of the best cities to eat. It is a lot safer than Guyana. Security is not as much of an issue. Again, walking around at night is something you probably wouldn't do. There are not many people who are out on the streets at night. So there are parts of the city that are kind of crowded and bustling, and you can go out at night there. But around neighborhoods, it's usually pretty quiet. So you're taking a car from point A to point B. During the day, walking around, pretty fine, like just sort of, you know, usual precaution kind of stuff, nothing outrageous. And like I said, absolutely amazing. I got to get out of the city a little bit. I got to get to the coast. Um, I got to... So Suriname is on the Atlantic. The Atlantic Ocean is there, but also three rivers come to meet. So we've got the ocean and then these three rivers coming to meet right outside of Paramaribo. And you can take tours where you can see some of the pink dolphins that live in those waters. And when you see these dolphins, they're, they say pink, but it's really their bellies are slightly pink. They didn't look super pink to me. I was expecting them to be like bright pink. And I've seen photos of like super bright pink ones. So maybe there's just like one pink one. And then the rest of them just roll with the reputation. I'm not sure. But you got on these boats. And again, as soon as you leave Paramaribo, you're just like instantly into like nature and the, the jungle. And it's so wild and untamed. It's it's really, really, really beautiful. I I just, it's fascinating. There are a lot of Dutch tourists who go to Suriname. And so there were a lot of Dutch tourists. There was a huge family with me on this boat ride where the grandfather had grown up in Suriname and then moved back to, to the Netherlands and then um, came over. So we had his son and then their kids and then their grandkids. It was like four generations of people and this huge family group visiting Suriname and he wanted to show them where he grew up. Really interesting. So we were on this boat and they take you out to this sort of crossroads of this where these rivers meet. And you wait for like 10 or 15 minutes. He, the guide points out, oh, look, there's a dolphin there. There's a, dolf a dolphin there in the distance. And you're thinking, oh, man, they're not going to come. That's it. <laughs> These dolphins come up to the boat and they start like doing tricks, flipping out. I, I, I swear they're getting paid. It was wild. Like they would come up, do tricks. They would do like, you know, where their head is like bobbing out of the water and they're balancing on their tail. It was kind of nuts. Uh, really amazing. You go to the plantations, you get to see some of the, the sugar plantations and learn about the history of slavery in Suriname and colonialization. Also, you get to see a lot of the wild animals. They're just like monkeys just running around. They're caiman, which is kind of a sort of like a smaller, more aggressive alligator type thing. So we got to see some of those and just a bunch of different animals, tortoises and so on. So Suriname really really liked Suriname. They have like all these food festivals a couple times of the of week and yeah, it really underrated. Again, it's not for everybody. It's a little bit exotic. Uh, if you're not the most experienced traveler, it might not be the first place I would recommend for you to go. But if you have a little bit of travel experience, you want to go off the beaten path, I highly recommend Suriname. I think it's a great place to visit.
Um, the next place, real quick, Panama City. Panama City is major bustling. Like, I mean, it's like New York of Central and South America. That, that city is just booming. Like, there's a ton of stuff going on. You've got your downtown, you've got your skyscrapers, you've got the Panama Canal, which was bucket list visit for me, was really, really amazing. And so much food, so many friendly people, like so out, it's just so much stuff to do outdoors there. A lot of great running parks, a lot of things by the water, by the coast. That seafood is amazing. You've got, you know, Atlantic and Pacific coast there. I really like Panama City. I think it is just amazing. Like, you know, that, that meme where people go to Europe and then they, they spend like five minutes in a city and they go, I think I could live there. That's kind of how I feel about Panama City. I feel like I could have spent easily, you know, a couple months there and had a ton of things to do. Uh, from there, then I hit Honduras. I went to Roatan, which is an island off the coast of Honduras, uh, big with cruise ships. And, you know, it's a huge, it's not huge, it's a pretty big island. And the far side of the island, away from where the ports are, is really wild, like a lot of jungle. It's it's really laid back. There are indigenous community, there are Garfuna there, and they have a different cuisine and a different way of life. It's way more relaxed out there. Um, but it is kind of a, a, a drive away from the main centers where you would be staying. In town, though, although it is busier, it was a little bit, for me, I would not say just touristy, but there's a, a lot of roads have been built like right in front of the beach. And so walking around, like you've got to constantly watch your step. There are cars walking by. It's loud. It wasn't my favorite environment. But once you know kind of the places to go and you know how to get around, it's relatively easy to you kind of get accustomed to that. And then you get to really experience how good the food is. There's a lot of great places to eat, especially depending on where you stay, whether it's the West End or, you know, which part of the, the island you stay in. But so many great places to eat, a lot of great local places to eat. So Roatan, because of the cruise ships, because it gets so much business coming in from the cruise ship is expensive. Like accommodation is expensive. We're talking about $100 a night average for a hotel. And about for a meal, it's like 20 bucks, 20, $25 for a meal, which, you know, considering it's Honduras is expensive. Islands are typically more expensive because they have to bring everything in from outside. But if you eat some of the local places, local foods, which honestly are a lot better than some of the fancier places, you get... You can get like, they have this huge, like, it's like a, I would just call it like a massive taco. That's what I would call it. It's just this huge, huge, huge taco. It's filled with beans. You can get it with meat. You can get it with cheese, all kinds of things. And they're like a dollar, <laughs> like a dollar fifty. You can eat one, maybe two if you're starving. And that's a great meal. You get a drink with that. You know, you're spending like $3 there. They have like great street food, great street tacos. They got this one guy... I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head, but he's just making tacos with the street. He's very famous there. And so, um, yeah, like, like, you know, a dollar or two, you get a couple of tacos. The beaches are beautiful. If you scuba dive or snorkel, though, it's heaven for you. It's one of the world's best places to, to scuba dive. It has one of, I think, the second, one of the most famous wreaths, wreath, not reefs uh, for scubaing. So, yeah, that was Honduras. Got to play with some monkeys at a sanctuary and a couple of sloths 
the are the monkeys and the sloths are not native to the island at least not those species they're also a bunch of uh, huge uh, parrots not native to the island what happens is people bring them over they sell them as pets and then they quickly realize that a sloth or a monkey makes a bad pet sloths will die in captivity within days they need to be outdoors and they need to be they have specialized diets and they they need to be in trees and so on monkeys are just like you would never want a monkey as a pet because they well, they just destroy everything <laughs> you know they're not these are not domestic animals so people bring them and i i was asking like how much would a sloth go for and they were like 5 to 10,000 dollars depending on who they're selling it to so there's like this trade of exotic animals and then people buy them and they can't take care of them so the sanctuary then picks them up and then they can't re-release them into the wild because these animals don't have the skills it takes to live in the wild. So I got to go to one of the the bigger sanctuaries there and it was really cool to hang out with the sloth like they're just as cuddly as you would imagine and monkeys are monkeys not a biggest fan of monkeys they smell pretty bad they jump around on your head from like five feet above i had a headache after that but again it was pretty cool so there's stuff to do there again it's just pick or choose when it comes to the rotan and uh, what you can see all right so that was uh, those were my travels that's kind of what i was up to over the last few months those videos are coming out on youtube so make sure that you are subscribed there and watching uh, a couple more coming up and like I said, we'll get into the tech season. Now, before I let you guys go, uh, I want to talk a little bit about two things. One is the bed bug scare in Paris. So there is a, this is from the BBC. It says bed bug panic sweeps Paris as infestations soar before 2024 Olympics. Now, disclaimer, I've never, I'm going to knock on wood. I don't want to curse myself, but I've never had bed bugs. I've never had to deal with it. And I'm really surprised considering as much as I travel and the kind of places I travel, I'm really glad I haven't. I feel like it's only a matter of time, but uh, it terrifies me. And I think it terrifies all of us who've ever had to deal with it or who haven't. So now bed bug sightings, it says in this article, have increased over the last weeks, upward trend that goes back several years. Every late summer, quote, we see a big increase in bed bugs, says Jean-Michel of Behringer, an entomologist at Marseille's main hospital. And it says people move a lot around, you know, traveling during August and July, and they bring bed bugs with them in their luggage. And each year, the seasonal increase is bigger than the last one. So one in 10 Parisians who live in Paris have had issues with bed bugs. And it says, uh, let's see, it says... Uh, people are beginning scared. They're not going to the theaters. It's causing declining attendance. And there's a sort of a, quote, general psychosis that has taken hold. And it says, the article says, well, it makes people more aware of the problem, but also a lot of people think it's being exaggerated. And so numbers of bed bugs are going up all around the world. That's because after World War II, according to the article, many bed bugs were wiped out due to the widespread use of DDT, but over the years, DDT and many other chemicals have been banned because of their effect on humans. In the meantime, the bed bug population became resistant to DDT, and now those bugs that we have now are a lot more resistant to many of the chemicals that we use against them. 
and then a third factor for their increase. So we got more travel, we've got uh, resistance and less effective chemicals to kill them. And then it says a third factor might be the decline in cockroaches, thanks largely to cleaner homes. Cockroaches are a bedbug predator. Fear not, no one is suggesting infesting, reinfesting homes with cockroaches in order to deal with it. However, in the developed world, people are liable to pa panic about bedbugs because we have lost the collective memory of them in other parts of the world. They are common and people keep the threat in proportion. So it's saying here that bedbugs don't spread disease. The damage is more psychological than anything. The bites are loathsome, but they don't last very long. It says they leave uh, little black dots. If you've seen any of my recent hotel reviews, you see how I look for bed bugs before I sleep in a hotel bed. But uh, um, so you're, you're looking for the feces and those spots. But it basically says, you know, 10% of people are spreading most of the bed bugs. So these are called super spreaders. These are people, the article says, who do the most damage. They are often marginalized, poor, mentally ill, with little access to social services. And so uh, they, they call these super spreader flats. And the team in this article that they're describing uh, will find hundreds of bed bugs crawling all over each other in the clothes, you know, floorboards behind pictures, eggs, everything like that. And when those people live in a situation like that, when they move around anywhere, they spread all of that. So um, a problem that is going to be have to be dealt with by Paris before the Olympics. And boy, oh boy, the Olympics is going to be a super spreading event. So last thing real quick, let's talk about iPhone 15. I have not gotten my review out yet. So expect that. Nice thing about what I do with the iPhone review is sort of the, the where I sit with a lot of the reviews is I like to test things over a long period of time. So it's great to be one of the first reviews out. You get a lot of clicks and views, but you can only get so much time with the phone. Like I like to see how the phone handles over time. You know, like what is it like after six months in your pocket or three months of using it without a case? What does the phone look like? And already though, because usually, you know, in the beginning, those kind of cracks or, or defects or issues with, with a device won't show up. This year, it's totally different, though. There are some pretty big problems with the iPhone 15. Some are hardware, some are software. Let's talk about the overheating. Uh, if you watch the iPhone iPhondo channel, you see that, for example, Instagram will cause your phone to just overheat, iPhone 15, especially the pros. So when you open Instagram, and even if you don't do anything, you just leave Instagram open, it's going to cause the temperature of the phone to skyrocket. This is an issue that Apple has now said they're going to fix with a software update, but a couple of different apps, mainly Instagram, is causing the phones to overheat. Heat, obviously bad for the battery, bad for the internal components, and if your phone stops working because it's overheating and has to shut itself down, that's also bad. So iPhone overheating issues. If you've seen JRig Everything's video, he takes the iPhone 15 Pro, the titanium, and just puts a little bit of pressure sort of trying to bend it and it cracks. I don't know if you guys have seen this video, but it, it just cracks with very little pressure. Reminds me of Bengate with the iPhone 6. Remember that where the phone would bend when it was in your pocket 
like it was like a, such a major issue that Apple had to actually do kind of like a recall where they, they would do a trade-in or they would, you know, allow you to give your phone back for them to improve the, uh, the structural integrity of the phone. And they knew about it all the time, by the way. And I think it's the same thing with this. I think they've made some small modifications to the, to the, you know, the outside, the materials they're using for the phone. And I think the overheating, the software issue, I feel like those are easy fixes, but I think with the, you know, the hardware, those fixes, they probably have known about it. I, I, I will say most definitely they've known about it. They put those phones during testing for years through all kinds of stress tests. They definitely know about it and just probably make the decision. Well, it's probably not going to affect, you know, more than blah, blah, blah percent of people will, will live with that. But it seems like it's happening to more and more people. A couple of uh, big reviewers and, and people on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it, have been posting videos where the glass doesn't line up quite with the screen. Like the, the glass is off center. Things like that, like small manufacturing defects. The titanium also scratches super, super, super easily. So I'm wondering a few things. I'm wondering, is Apple going to have to do something like Bengate, the iPhone 6, where they have like a, a recall program, recall program, or are they going to quietly update the hardware over the next month or two? And, you know, there the manufacturing process to kind of improve and reduce these kind of defects. My guess is a little bit of both, but I think we're really looking at the iPhone 16 now. I think, you know, a lot of people have said that the iPhone 15 is a very, very, very incremental update to the iPhone 14, which is true as an end user. So it looks a lot of the same as the, you know, the 14. By the way, if you're going to buy an iPhone, the iPhone... 14, the iPhone 15 regular is basically an iPhone 14 Pro. They're basically the same. So if you can get a really good deal on iPhone 14 Pro compared to the 15, get the iPhone 14 Pro. They're, they're essentially the same beast. And, you know, a lot of these reports are saying, you know, the reviews are saying, well, these are incremental updates, which is true. As an end user, you don't, you know, like it's made of titanium. Is it, yeah, it's lighter. It's a little bit lighter, 10% lighter. Is it, you know, using a different kind of, you know, material for the side rails? Yeah, sure. But as an end user, unless, you know, for scratching and durability purposes, that's what you care about. But for Apple, it's a pretty big manufacturing change. It's not incremental when it comes to when you change the composition of the back, when you switch to from aluminum to titanium or, you know, the type of glass, all those things are pretty big engineering challenges that have to be met. So I think this one is going to be kind of like, I think we're going to see all those problems disappear with the 16. I think in the meantime, with the 15, we're going to notice a lot of these issues with the titanium. I wouldn't be surprised if next year, the weight of the, the weight goes up. And if they make some changes to the side rail, if you're shopping for an iPhone 15 right now, I would say, wait, I'll, you know, I would say, give it a month. Let's see. Let's see the software update come out to fix the overheating issues. Let's see if they don't change some of the manufacturing processes, or maybe if they change the way that the titanium is cooked onto the, the body, all that kind of stuff. I would say, wait a month, you know, especially if you're shopping for tech at this time of the year. 
this is a time of the year where you can get really, really good deals on stuff. So especially as we get closer to Christmas time, I would wait, I would wait on, on buying those. So unless you really, really, really need a phone, then chances are it's probably, these things are probably not going to affect you, but just be aware that these issues do exist. Overheating, don't put a lot of pressure bending the phone. Don't put it in your back pocket and sit down. You could easily crack the back and then slap a case on it if you don't want to get any scratches on that, on the, the softer side rails, all that stuff. So I would say, yeah, if you can wait, I would wait on it. If not, if you really find a good deal on the iPhone 14 Pro, I, I would go with the 14 Pro, honestly. They're still selling those new, but if you can find a deal on those, the price is definitely going to I wouldn't say definitely, but most, most likely going to drop in the coming weeks. Again, sales, I'd grab an iPhone 14 Pro. If you're coming from a 10 or 11, that's a, if you get a good deal on that, it's going to be a good phone. It's going to be a lot more durable than the 15 regular, and it's going to last you years. You know, we've gotten to the point with smartphones where they've matured. I don't know. I'm old. So I remember, you know, in the nineties when PCs were coming out every year, there was a jump like a 233 gigahertz to the 333. They were like massive leaps in computing power. But you've probably noticed this too, that, you know, you don't buy a laptop every year. You're, you're, you buy a laptop every couple of years and that, that period between tech updates gets longer and longer and longer. And that's a good thing. It means that the technology is matured and that we're getting more and more incremental updates. Always a good thing to see tech in that field. It's more exciting when stuff is new and every year it's like a massive change. But something that's more reliable, you know how it's going to work, is really better for you as the consumer. And that's where we are with phones. You're not going to see like a major leap between year and year, especially with Apple. Apple is notoriously slow with their incremental updates. You know, they're not going to make a massive change between year one and year two. So... Um, if you got a 10 or 11, look for the 14 pro or the 15, if you're willing to, you know, just be a little extra careful with it, it's going to last you a couple of years. If you are a yearly upgrader, then, uh, just, just be careful. And there we go. That's the end of the first episode of season five. Thank you all very much. I feel like I missed you. I, I feel like I've had a lot of st stories to tell. It's been a lot of fun. I, like I said, there's so many great episodes. I'm actually recording one coming up a little bit after this. So many great episodes from different parts of the world, different stories, different topics, really just a lot of interesting stuff to bring you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, all of you. We're in season five. I am super excited for what's coming up. Super, super excited. Thanks again for listening. I hope you have a great rest of your day and I'll talk to you in the next episode.